God, in the beginning, God created, we recognize that God is revealing himself in relation to his works, namely creation. And in doing so, he's revealing to Moses and to us that he is a God that does not change. He is a God that had not changed from what he had been to the patriarchs in those far-off days. He was still the God who calls into the unknown, overcomes impossible odds to keep his promises. We can think of all the instances of calling out even the, the farther back patriarchs when he asked Moses to build him an ark. When he explains to Abraham that he's going to provide a son and nations and kings would be birthed from Sarah's barren womb. He was the God near to Isaac on the mountain where his father was faithfully willing to sacrifice him. He was the God of Jacob. We know that the Lord loved Jacob before he ever existed. And here, certainly, he is the same God of the Israelites, for he hears and sees and knows of their treatment. He knows of their cries. He has seen their oppression. And he is responding with grace and kindness. We recognize that God reveals himself initially by identifying his essence as God. In, in previous revelation, he had identified his name to the patriarchs, but here in a special way, as the epoch of the Old Testament turns and, and is moving towards the Mosaic Covenant, he does so in a new and greater way. Or the basis upon his name he gives further explanation of. He revealed himself to Yahweh, to Abraham and to Jacob, and to the other patriarchs, but here he explains who he is. And so by revealing himself in verses 13 through 18 in this way, he's identifying that his existence, and by applying a personal name to his existence, he shows that his essence is identical with his existence. So such that there isn't God and Yahweh and that that they're interchangeable in such a way that I am human and Nathan, that my humanity is not dependent on being Nathan, because there are no there are um, there's no other oh there's another Nathan in the room. But it is not necessary. Nathanness is not necessary for humanity. But God is Yahweh. Yahweh is God. His essence and his existence are identical, and he reveals that by his explanation of his name by saying, I am who I am. I am who I am. It's interesting when he gives uh, this explanation of his name, because later on he says, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Moses asks, who shall I say has sent me? And his first response is, 
this is how I exist. I exist by existing. I am self-existent. I am wholly independent to exist. The Lord provided this in picture in the flame, in the flaming bush, because it, there was a flame, there was a flaming bush, and yet it was not being consumed by the flame. So the flame that does not consume the bush to exist is the flame that is nourished by its own life. It's needed no external fuel to feed it. It's a truly living flame. A flame that would never die out because it would never consume the bush. When you have a campfire, eventually when you run out of wood, you run out of fire. But here this bush, according to the Lord's will, could have gone on burning, if we can use that word, perpetually. As a picture of God's self-existence, as a picture of his full independence from all other beings. God is not the, the greatest being. He is a whole other. He is the being on which we all, our beings all rely upon. I am that I am. We can say, I am this and I am that. If we're talking about our existence, I can say, I am a son, I am a father, all these things I was made. I was made to be a son when I was born. I was made to be a father when my children were born. I was made to be a husband when I was married. God is, I am that who I am, or I am that I am. No one has made God to be. God is the theological language we call this holy independence of God is divine aseity, divine independence. He owes his existence to no one other than himself. He is the God who is. This is the God who's revealing himself to Moses' concern. First, Moses' concern is with himself. Who am I? Then his concern is, who are you? Oh, the Lord's grace is abundant and his loving kindness is forever. For he does not just remove Moses from being at his ignorance. But he comes to Moses, revealing himself to be the one who is the one in whom all other being participates in is in is in need of is in holy dependence upon he furthermore as he reveals his essence and his existence he then reveals his works which are consistent with such things because his works that he that he uh, expresses to Moses are works of a Promise-keeping God. He says, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and all those that dwell there to the land flowing with milk and honey. 
and he says he does so out of fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Furthermore, we know he does so out of fulfilling his promise or his cursing of the serpent and his promise to humanity to provide a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. But couched in between that are these words. At the end of verse 16, he says, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. The God who is, is concerned about the Israelites being afflicted in Egypt. What incomprehensible beauty and knowledge is there that this infinite and eternal, unchangeable, self-existent God is concerned with man, particularly here, the Israelites in Egypt. Moses' response is much like ours, as I said. He asks a number of questions that are contained here in our passage and, and follow on into chapter 4. The idea, though, is that as God reveals himself to Moses here, he says that the Israelites will pay heed to what you say, that eventually Pharaoh will even pay heed to what you say, and that you will come out of Egypt to worship the Lord. And even beyond that, that they will not go empty-handed, but they will go with the riches of Egypt. What we have in our New Testament, in our New Covenant setting, what we have here in the antitype of what is being promised to the Israelites, we have in the fullness in Christ, that we have plundered this world's goods as it relates to our souls and eventually all that is uh, preservedly good will be made anew and into a greater possession for ours and the new heavens and new earth. The Lord has done it all. The Lord has done it all on our behalf. In the same way Moses and the Israelites are help, helpless as in their slavery to Egypt, so are we in our natural state and our slavery to sin. So God doesn't say, come out of your slavery to sin and then prove to me you were worth saving. Just in the same way for the Israelites, as a, as a corporate people, he says, I will bring you out of Egypt and put you in the land. Individually, we are going to see as it relates to the uh, Mosaic covenant that there will be those that break the covenant and fall, sh and fall short of the covenant stipulations and so forfeit the land. They will never see the land of Canaan. They will die in the desert. But as a corporate people, Israel will be brought into the land. So it is with true Israel. We will see the land 
the true land, the heavenly land of Canaan, the true Jerusalem. For the true Israel, the true Israelite has gone before us, attained the blessings, and by his spirit has dis is dispensing them to us and has given us all things so that when we approach him, we don't approach him to prove ourselves as if we were ever worthy of this gift, but ultimately to prove God's goodness and mercy to us in our reverence and thanksgiving. As I said in Exodus 3.16, God reveals that he would have been carefully watching over his people during their time of bondage. And then in verse 17, God intended Moses to remind the Israel of his promise to bring them out of Egypt. And as I've been saying, Moses' response to all this has been one of utter despondency. He was desperate. He says in, verses, in verse 11 of chapter 3, who am I? In verse 13 of chapter 3, what shall I say to them? Who are you? In verse 1 of chapter 4, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? In chapter 10 of verse 4, I've never been eloquent. And finally, in chapter 13 of chapter 4, please send someone else. Moses is showing himself, as we will see later on in Egypt, over and over again to be an insufficient mediator. For in all these statements, Christ has proclaimed to be a greater Moses. For in John, he over, John emphasizes this in his gospel over and over again. Christ proclaims himself to be ego, I, me, I am, which in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is what's translated. Th these are the words used here in Exodus 3, ego, I, me. I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. The ego I me. And so when we read in John all the times that Christ says that I am, I am, I am. He's showing himself to be the greater Moses. He's not asking who I am. He's proclaiming who he is. He doesn't ask, what shall I say to them who has sent me? For over and over again, he proclaimed that the Father had sent him. And he came to do all that the Father had given him to do. He says, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? This is Moses. The greater Moses says, all that believe in me will abide in me, will obey me. He comes in a power and authority greater than that of the Pharisees. And so he never proclaims to not be eloquent. And though in the garden we see the agony of the place of the cross before him and the suffering of God's wrath and his humanity upon him, he concludes not my will, but your will be done. The greater Moses never asking to send someone else. Paul also exposits 
the divine name for us. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Some of you may know this passage well. It's, it's Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, and he spent time uh, walking uh, amongst the, um, the Areopagus. He's w- walking amongst all these temples and all these shrines to these gods that, uh, that they had identified and were worshiping. And he says to them in verse 22 of Acts 17, he said, He stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe you are very religious in all respects. He says, you, you want to worship God, our gods. You are religious in that you worship something other than yourself, or you worship things. You give reverence to such things. For I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. The Athens were covering all their bases. Said, if there's a God out there we don't know, we got you covered. He says, Paul says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Paul was not giving credence to their uh, worship of this unknown God. What he was saying is, you're right. All those other gods are wrong. There is a there is a God above all other gods. There is a God who separates himself, not just in Uh, size but in essence and in being because he is the one who upholds all things and is in need of nothing nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the earth, on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. This philosophical language that Paul utilizes here exposes not only the essence of God, but his existence. Because every other existent is contingent upon his, which is contingent upon nothing. Paul had in mind, or we can summarize, that if he didn't, the Spirit of God working through Paul would have been expositing the name of God. I am that I am. Furthermore, we find other expositions of the divine name. As I mentioned, uh, Christ exposits the divine name in John. But if we look at a specific example, let's turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus spoke again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, 
but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself. And the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. With these words, he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So again, he, uh, Christ expositing the divine name says, I am he who testifies about myself. And then equating himself with the Father, one in essence with the Father, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Further on, he says in verse 23, and he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he was speaking to them about the Father. And then he says, so Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he sent me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Further on. In verse 31, he continues, he's saying, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. What was God saying to Moses in the desert? I am that I am has sent you. Trust in me, and you will be free. They proclaim that they are Abraham's descendants, and they have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Truly, I say to you, Christ answered them, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Here, Christ is echoing Exodus. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. They accuse him further on of, about his claim to be 
uh, of Abraham, and they're claimed to be Abraham's descendants. And then in verse 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? The most important question of all time, the perennial question for even our culture nowadays is who has Christ made himself out to be? And ultimately, what difference does that make in your own life? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Here, there was no question about what Christ was saying to the Pharisees. There was no question of what Christ was inferring when he said, before Abraham was born, I am. For we see God's grace and mercy to Moses in revealing himself in the burning bush by the angel of the Lord. But grace upon grace and how he has revealed himself fully in Christ. Oh, that we would see something greater than a burning bush that is not consumed is with us now. For here we have the word of the Lord telling us that the divine name is in reference to the Godhead and here in the incarnation to Christ our Lord. And so we take upon this singular name in our baptism as we're instructed by Christ. That we are to be baptized in the name, the singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And this Paul further explains as he gets through his exposition of the gospel and certainly as it relates to the gospel as it relates to God in his essence in Romans 1. When he gets to Romans 12, he says that we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices for this is our reasonable service or our reasonable worship. What is the end of the knowledge of God in his name if it isn't reverence and worship there is not true knowledge of God that remains head knowledge so that you can pass some theological quiz one day the true knowledge of God is that which gives us life it's what sets us free it's what makes us living sacrifices to offer up reasonable worship of ourselves Our reverence here and worship is the right response to the revelation of God in his name. 
in his word in Christ our Lord. The incomprehensible God reveals himself to us as the self-existent, independent, simple, eternal God. And as we approach him by faith in Christ, it should produce reverence. And ultimately, as it will produce for the Israelites uh, corporately, entrance into Canaan, full possession of the land, so he will in us produce reverence and endurance to the end. What wonders and riches we have in Christ. Oh, that we would not toil in the cares of this world long, but that we would quickly look to Christ, who's described as many things, but is also the author and finisher of our faith. He will bring us to the end, for he is faithful to all his promises. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we give you praise this morning as we consider your goodness to us to reveal yourself that we could know something, that we could apprehend some truth about you. And yet knowing, Lord, that the deepness of your essence, the vastness of your existence is greater than all the oceans of all the planets of all the universe. It is beyond all knowledge. And yet, you reveal yourself to us sweetly, lovingly, graciously, mercifully there in Midian, there on Sinai in a bush, in the angel of the Lord, supremely in Christ our Lord. Oh, that we, your people, would listen to him we would have reverence. We would trust him for endurance. May this be enlivened in us as we continue to worship you this morning and even on into the next week and on and on until eternity comes. To your praise and honor and glory forevermore. Amen.